0: Samuel. We are going to uh, we kicked off a series that's going to last at least four weeks, but my my gut feeling is that we're going to be here a little bit longer. We're gonna we're gonna be hanging out in First and Second Samuel for at least the next month and probably the next month and a half. So uh, if you want to, and I, and I strongly encourage you to do this, go ahead and not right now at this very moment, but over the next month, month and a half. Go ahead and begin to just give your Bible study time to First and Second Samuel. Just begin to read through it. It's some of the most incredible narrative pieces of the Scripture that there are. It's you, You'll find yourself in there. And that's, that's one of the things we really hope is that you end up finding yourself in the, in the characters that God begins to use. And you'll find yourself on more than one occasion. Um, so that's what we want to do. Um, the other thing I'd encourage you to do as well is last night, Pastor Ray, he kicked us off in this series and he kicked us off by taking... Uh, taking us through essentially the first 1,500 years of God's dealings with the Hebrew people in 47 minutes, okay? You, you really probably should. We say this a lot. You really should go back to the audio archive, pick up P. Ray's message, and give it a listen because it'll, it'll just give you the foundation that you need for everything that we're about to kick off on. This morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus in on several incidents, um, and so we're going to have to pay close attention. Uh, I will also tell you, I, I didn't do a good job of Making PowerPoints. I don't have any PowerPoints this morning, so you really need your Bible. Did you bring your Bible? I hope you did. All right? We're going we're to kick off uh, slightly out of chronological order, and we'll get back in chronological order next week, but we're going to be slightly out of chronological order here for a minute. So we're going to start with First uh, Samuel chapter 8. We're going to look this morning at the very beginning of Saul's life, okay? Um, Saul is the first, he's the first king of Israel. And uh, all this begins to happen in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to tell you uh, Saul's story, all right? And here's what Saul's story is all about. Saul's story is all about tension, okay? And you'll you'll find your own life in Saul's story because Saul's story is about what the people want, the people of Israel. It's all about what the people of Israel want. It's all about what God wants. And it's all about what Saul wants. How many of you can relate to that sort of deal. How many of you have ever felt in your life that every decision I make has a mixture of what I want, what someone else wants, and what God wants in it? This is this is the story of Saul. So that's what we find that's what we're looking at here. I want to I want you to look here at uh, the main verse that we're going to start with anyway is 1st is Samuel chapter 8 verse 5. And this is when the people come to Samuel and Samuel's a prophet. Samuel's one of the most incredible prophets in all the Bible. There's there's a little phrase uh, that's said about Samuel, that's spoken about him at the beginning of the book. And if you go back and read it, you'll, you'll catch up on it. But it's, it was said of Samuel that the Lord never let one of his words fall to the ground. Can you imagine? Every word that you speak carries weight, carries force, carries action, something happens. Can you imagine being that kind of person? And P. Ray brought this up last night, and, and, and I've thought about it myself a couple times. I'm not sure if it was because Samuel was so in tune with the voice of the Lord that he only spoke what he heard God saying. And and that way, God never let any of his words fall to the ground. Or perhaps it was because God just liked Samuel so much that anything he spoke, God said, I will back it up. You know? I have a feeling it's a mixture of both. And I actually have a feeling it's a lot more of the latter than any of us would dare to think. I have a feeling that God just was so into Samuel. So this is what we pick up here in chapter 8, verse 5. What we have here is, up to this point, all of the Hebrew people, all of the tribes of Israel have been led by a prophet named Samuel, a prophet whose words not one of them ever fell to the ground. And up to this point, they've been led by this one single guy, and and apart from that, God has been their king. But then in chapter 8, verse 5, the people say something, and this is what they say to Samuel. They say, Samuel, you're old. And your sons don't walk in your ways, now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. You know what that's called? That's called what the people want. Saul's story begins with this very verse right here. It begins with what the people want. And what the people want is they want a king, and they want to be like all the other nations. Okay? And here's what I want you to realize at the very beginning of the story here, before Saul even, even gets comes onto the stage. Saul is going to walk on the stage because people want something. And what the people want is actually something that isn't in the heart of God. And when they ask for a king, they're not just saying, Samuel, we don't like you. We don't have confidence in you because you're old anymore. They're saying something way more dramatic than that. And God goes ahead and spells it out for Samuel. And a few verses later, he says, Samuel, don't lose heart. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me. And there's something in the cry of the people that's actually in our own lives. It's actually in my own life and maybe it's in yours as well. And it's this, this, this desire to be like everyone else, right? It's, it's this desire. We want to be like all the other people. And so the people come to Samuel and say, let's be like everyone else. We want a king like all the other nations. And one of the things I want to say to you at the very beginning here is, is very simple. If we're the people of God, we just need to get comfortable with being a peculiar kind of people. God's plan works differently then every other person's plan works out. God's people will always look different. If you're uncomfortable being weird, you're going to be very uncomfortable hanging around Jesus. If you don't like looking strange, you're going to be very uncomfortable hanging around with God. You know, I mean, there's something about being the people of God. It marks them out. It marks us out. And He places us in a different category. And God will begin to deal with us. He deals with His own people in ways that that seem counterproductive, to efficiency counterproductive to the way things ought to work counterproductive to order if we're going to embrace a life with God we need to be a, begin to embrace a life that is set apart from everyone else everywhere else amen this is what this is how this is the this is the introduction for Saul coming to be the king <clears throat> And so God says, hey, they're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me. And this is the other thing as well. God says, Samuel, go ahead and give them a king. And this is one of the things. There's something about God's nature that's tied up in this story. The people ask for something they shouldn't have. The people ask for something that actually wounds God's heart. And he tells Samuel, Samuel, go ahead. Go ahead and give them what they want. And here's one of the things we need to capture about God. God is way, let me put it this way. God will give you, oftentimes, exactly what you're asking for. The life that you're living is, is really, it really is an accumulation of the choices that you've made all along. God really does respect choice. E- even oftentimes when it's a choice that He would prefer you didn't make, He will oftentimes get involved and say, Okay, you want that? Here's the deal. One of the things we don't realize about God is this. He's such a big person. He's such a big person that He is mature enough that He will take you Seriously. And when you ask for something, he will give it. Not only that, but as you read it, one of the things you'll pick up on real quick is, even though it wounded God's heart, he stayed tender and he stayed affectionate toward his rebellious people. How good is God? Even, even, even in our most rebellious moments, God stays tender and God stays affectionate. God, God continues to be a provider. He's not harsh. He's not judgmental. And So what ends up happening is, Samuel goes out. And looks for a king. And in chapter 9, chapter 9 begins with with the story of Saul. But the story of Saul actually begins with the story of his father, Kish. And Kish was a prominent man. It it says this in in chapter 9, verse 1. It says that Kish was a prominent man among the tribe of Benjamin. Here's what you need to know about the tribe of Benjamin. By the time that we get to this point where the people of Israel are asking for a king, all the tribes have begun to turn on one another and they're fighting each other. And they're no longer fighting the enemies of God. They've begun to fight their own enemies. And one of the tribes that they've beat up on is the little tiny tribe of, of Benjamin. And at one point, at the end of the book of Judges, they actually have to come up with a plan to repopulate Benjamin. And this has a couple of effects. Number one, it, makes, uh, it causes the entire people of Benjamin to feel like an oppressed people, even within their own kinsmen. Understand what I'm saying? If everyone comes and kills you, it affects you, Right? <laughs> It affects your outlook on life. But the outlook, the outlook changed not just their internal workings, but it, it, it became a part of who they were. And so among all the tribes of Israel, Benjamin became the, mo- the most warlike, okay? This is a big deal. Benjamin became the most warlike. They were like, we've got to protect ourselves, not just from the enemies of God, but from God's own people, our own brothers, our own kinsmen. And so when it says that, that uh, Saul was going to come from, there was a man named Kish... And he was a prominent Benjamin. What do we need to see is this is that he was he was most likely a wealthy guy. He had herds, okay? And 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 prominence in those days was really connected to a lot like today. It's like, what do you have? And so he had herds, he had he had he had herds of donkeys, and he was from a warlike tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. No, I never lose connection with this. Chapter 8, verse 5. Give us a king, what the people want. And so God begins to choose someone. And his choice is not just his choice, but his choice is resting upon what the people want. If you were going to go look for a king, who would you go? Where would you go and find a king? You'd probably go to the most warlike people, am I right? And you'd probably go to the prominent man, am I right? And now look at here what it says in in chapter nine, verse two. Kish had a son named Saul, and he was an impressive young man, without equal among the Israelites a head taller than any of the others. So Saul's dad was a man of standing. He comes from a warlike tribe, and Saul himself was impressive. He was at least a foot taller than anyone else. When you're a foot taller, you're just bigger, you're more muscular, you're stronger. What? He's the dude, right? If you were going to look out, you go, him. If any of us in the room were to meet Saul and say, pick a king, we'd all go, him. Why? God is beginning to tell a prophetic story within... He's beginning to tell a prophetic story to his own people. And within the story, he's beginning to give them exactly what they want. Someone who pleases the eye. Someone who's big. Someone who's strong. Someone who's tough. Someone who's from a warlike tribe. Someone who's going to be able to kick butt and take names. And it's the same today. Uh, studies have shown that taller people make more money. Did you know that? Taller people get better jobs and make more money. Uh, when it comes to women, if you're, if you're blonde hair, you get, you get promoted faster. There's actual Harvard studies on this. Attractive people make more money. Because what's the deal? It's really getting at at to the seat of of where human desire sits. And it, it always sits at the eye. What does it look like? How does it make me feel? So Saul looked like the perfect candidate. And he was what the people asked for. In fact, this is another thing about Saul. You know what Saul's name means? It means asked for. God begins to tell... He's telling us a story. God is a masterful storyteller. When God tells a story, He uses real people and He weaves it so beautifully. People ask for a king and the, and the king that, they, that ends up getting selected, his name means asked for. You can turn the page in your Bible. We're going to work through several chapters here. <clears throat> and in chapter 9... Saul goes on this donkey chase. His father lose all, loses all of his donkeys. If you have a, maybe a different translation, it might say wild asses. I like that. I think that sounds great. So Saul is on a wild, wild ass chase across the desert. And, and while he's out, he has no idea what's going on. And while he's out, he, he, he can't find him. He and his servant, they can't find him. So they go and they find Samuel because they hear that Samuel is a prophet and a seer and he'll be able to tell them. And when they run into Samuel... When they run into Samuel, Samuel has already heard in the spirit about this, about this guy named Saul. And we need to look at a few verses here. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 15 through 17. This is really what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the anointing. Um, chapter, 15, chapter 9, verse 15. Now the day that, that Saul came, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. See, Samuel already knew he was coming. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin... "'Anoint him leader over my people Israel. "'He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. "'I have looked upon my people, "'for their cry has reached me. "'And when Samuel caught sight of Saul, "'the Lord said to him, "'This is the man I spoke to you about. "'He will govern my people.'" Here's the deal. In case you haven't uh, caught up on this in your, in your Bible time, uh, one of the things you need to know is that anointing is a really big deal in the Scriptures. In, in the most general sense, this is what anointing is. Uh, they would take oil and they would pour it on someone, and the oil represented the spirit. And uh, they would usually pour it on the head, and it was it was a, it was an outward it was an outward expression of an inward reality that was beginning to take place. So they would pour oil on them, and it would it would signify the, the spirit coming upon their life. And anytime someone gets anointed, they get a, they get anointed for a purpose. Okay, and I want you to notice this. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. There's a couple things that we need to see. There's two especially important things about anointing that we need to catch. Number one, anointing is always, always connected to uh, your call, uh, the, your office, your destiny, and your life purpose. Your anointing is always within that realm. Your call, your office, your destiny, and your life purpose. God will anoint you to do the thing you're called to do. He will empower you to, call, to do the thing you're called to do. So anointing is about, is about call, it's about office, it's about destiny, and it's about life purpose. And then number two, anointing is always about the presence of the Spirit. And any time we're talking about the presence of the Spirit, we're talking about power to do something. Where is power? Power is in the Spirit. Power is on the person who, who, who has the Spirit. So here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that someone comes up to you and they pour oil on your head says that Samuel took a flask of oil. flask was maybe like this big, okay? And pours it on Saul's head. I want you to imagine that someone pours 16 ounces of oil on your head. This is a really big deal. Anybody ever had 16 ounces of oil poured on their head? Oddly enough, I have strange story won't be told today <laughs> but but maybe 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 you've experienced this how many of you how many of you have experienced this how many of you know that when oil gets on something it absorbs into what it gets on how many of you know that like when how many how many of you've ever experienced this how many of you've been washing dishes and like some really greasy pans and you're washing these greasy pans and you're trying to get the grease off and Just won't come right, it won't come off, right? Oil absorbs into everything. It it gets in your skin, it gets in your hair, it gets in your fabrics, it goes all the way down. You can't get it off. What happens when you pour oil in water? They don't mix, right? No, so what's the deal with anointing? Anointing is when the presence of the Spirit comes on your life and it won't leave. It won't leave. Not only that, but the oil that they used in this time was fragrant. And so not only would it mess you up, not only would it just completely change you, but you're carrying this fragrance and you can't get rid of it. Like Saul, on the day that he was anointed, he would have gone home and in a few few paragraphs he meets meets his uncle and his uncle's like, what did the prophet tell you? And, And Saul just totally sidesteps the issue. But as soon as he walked in the door to meet his uncle, his uncle would have known something was up. Number one, because Saul looks crazy. His hair is just all messed up and his clothes are ruined. But not only that, but he would have probably smelled him before he even came because the oil was so fragrant. What's the deal with anointing? It's the presence of the Spirit that you can't get rid of. It changes your appearance and it literally is a fragrance and aroma that goes with you everywhere. And it's about your life purpose and your destiny. It's the empowerment. It's the external sign of an internal reality that the power and the presence of the Spirit has come upon your life to do something real. Because of that, we need the anointing. We really need the anointing. It's one of the things that we need to desire in our life. We need to desire the anointing of God. I want you to notice a couple things here. In uh, verse 15, God says, Anoint Him leader, over my people. See, anointing is always, it always has to do with purpose. And then number two, it always has other people in view. Anoint him leader over my people. Leader over my people. Now look at chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? Whose inheritance is the pe- are the people? God's. Here's what anointing does. Anointing is the, is the presence of the Spirit coming upon your life, but it's not about you or me becoming the big dog. It's about you and me being empowered to be the small dog, and it's about you and I becoming a benefit for God's people. And this is a really big deal because we want to be people who pursue the Spirit and be people who pursue the presence of God and who pursue anointing and who pursue living out our life destiny and calling. And one of the things that happens is when we turn our affections toward God in that way, when we, when we open our hearts to Him in that way, He will respond with anointing. He will respond with Spirit. He will respond with presence. And one of the things that is really important that we get a hold of right now is while we pursue anointing and while we pursue his affection and his favor and his empowerment, we can't be the kind of people who end up taking that anointing and manipulating his people and causing them to serve us. Because if you're really anointed, it's really easy to do that. Anointing is always about life purpose. It's always about calling. It's always about destiny. And it's always about other people. Other people are always in view. See, God anoints us, He fills us, He empowers us, He gives us a spirit so that we can transform and be a benefit to those those of us around us. I can't even talk, whatever. And here's the other thing. When we begin to ask for more anointing, when we begin to pray for more anointing, what we're really saying is, God, I want to be a leader. When we begin to say, God, I want more anointing in my life, what we're really saying is, God, I want to be a servant. And when we begin to say, God, I want more anointing in my life, what we really say is, God, would you let me walk in my destiny? Now, let's flip it around because it works the other way as well. When you, because most of us in the room have probably never prayed, God, anoint me more. Most of us have probably prayed this prayer. God, I want, God I want, tell me my purpose. You know, what, you know what the prayer, tell me my purpose is? Anoint my life. It's the same prayer. God, God, God let me do something for you. I want to partner with you. God, you, my life is yours. You know what the prayer, my life is yours is? The prayer, my life is yours is, God, come and anoint me. Come and put your spirit upon me. They're one and the same. And so when we, when we begin to pray like this, when we, begin, when we begin to ask for anointing, what we're asking for is a life of service. We're also asking for a life of risk. And we're also asking for a life of adventure and quite possible danger. Because we need to read this really carefully. Look at what Saul was actually anointed for. Samuel, go and anoint him leader over my people Israel. That sounds good, right? Everybody wants to be the big dog. Everybody wants to be the leader, right? How would you like to be this kind of leader? How would you like your leadership to be in this circle? And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. See, when we get the anointing in our life, the other thing that comes along with it, not is it just the power of the Spirit that won't leave, But the other thing that comes along with it is a life of risk, a life of adventure, and quite possibly danger. How many of you realize that if you're called to go and deliver a rebellious people from the hands of the warlike Philistines, that might not be easy? How how many of you realize that it might not be easy to disaffect a people from their home so that God's people can have it? Yeah, the anointing always has to do with war. See, the church is just so manby, pamby. See, we're called to war. We're called. We're called to displace enemies. This place isn't just a hospital. We you know we've been. We're starting this uh, transformation center and this inner healing center. It's you know that's great. Our identity will never be in transformation or inner healing. It will always be in war. Inner healing and transformation is only good because it allows people to get back in war. When you when you cry out, God, I want to be used. What you're really saying is, God, would you anoint me and would you give me the tools I need to go displace an enemy? And that will require risk. It will require risk. It will require risk. It will require danger. It's a life of adventure. You know, if you're bored, it, if you're bored, you need to ask for anointing and you go take a risk. <clears throat> When we, when we say, God, use me, and when we say, God, this is really important that we really live a life that says, God, I want more anointing. When we're, when we're living in that place of God, I want more anointing. One of the things that we're doing is we're saying, God, I'm committed to the, co- to the kind of life and to the kind of call that's so big, I need you to come and empower me. I need you to come and empower me. Like, we need to be people who are praying this prayer, God, anoint me. Apart from the prayer, God anoint me, we're just living, we're living a life that's utterly boring, and we're living the life that doesn't require the empowerment of the Spirit. Any life that doesn't require the power of the Spirit is boring, and it's just, it's just religious activity. It has the appearance of being something real. It's completely fake, completely fake. We're saying, one of the things, it's my dream, one of the dreams of my heart is, I want a life call that is, number one, that requires God to come alongside me, or I won't even come close to hitting it. And the other thing I want is, and connected right close to it, is I want, I want a life call that is so big that even with the presence of the Spirit in my life, I won't finish it in my 78 years. I want something that has to be carried on. I, I want to think multi-generationally. So you're not called to just the next 50, 60 years, whatever you've got left. You're called to multi-generations. God's writing this really long story, and He's, he's drawing people into it, and He's willing to put anointing on people who are willing to be, who are willing to be brave and courageous and like, do something awesome. So Samuel takes a flask of oil, pour oil, pours it on Saul's head, kissed him, and saying, "Has not the Lord anointed you leader over His inheritance?" Really underline that word, "His inheritance." This is where Saul gets so screwed up. And then, so, then Samuel gives him three confirmations. Okay, three confirmations before the end of chapter 10. These are the three confirmations. He says, hey, you're going to go down, down the road just a little bit and you're going to meet a couple men and uh, they're going to tell you that the donkeys have been found. That'll be the first confirmation. The second thing you're going to meet is you're going to go a little further down the road. You're going to meet three men this time rather than two. And these three men, they're going to have some food with them and they're going to give you bread. They're going to give you two loaves of bread. How weird is this? How weird is this? How would you like to be out and the prophets say, you're going to go out and some dudes at Kroger in the parking lot are just going to walk up to you and give you two loaves of bread and that will be a sign from God. It, that's what's going on. Like, we're, we need to put this in real life. Okay, Saul went to Kroger and before he even got out of his car, some guy came and knocked on his window and said, I have two loaves of bread for you. Second confirmation. Third confirmation was after that you're going to go further down the road and you're going to meet a company of prophets and though you've never prophesied though you've never even really been a believer though you've never even known God you're going to begin to prophesy when you meet them. They're going to be singing and playing instruments and you're going to meet them and you're going to prophesy. Three things they're all going to happen in this day and when they do you will know that what I'm telling you is the truth and it's not a lie. What happens? It happens exactly as Samuel said. A couple guys meet him and say, "Hey, the donkey's have been found. Don't worry about it. Now your dad's worried about you." meets three guys, they give him two loaves of bread. It's a prophetic picture. God is going to provide for you, Saul. Everything is provided for. God is taking care of you already. That's what these confirmations are about. The donkeys have been found. Did you go find them, Saul? No, you didn't. God has taken care of it. Here's two loaves of bread. Where did it come from? Who knows? God is providing for you. And not only that, but He's going to fill you with the Spirit. Your heart's going to be changed. You're going to be filled with the Spirit And you're going to prophesy, though you've never been a religious man, though you've never had a heart turned toward God, you're going to do something brand new. That's what's in the anointing. And he gives him three confirmations. Now, here's the trouble with confirmations. How many of you all like confirmations? I don't know how to feel about confirmations anymore. Here's why I don't know how to feel about confirmations. Because the more confirmation that you get on a word from God, the more you're going to need it. There's like a reason he gave Saul three confirmations. You know why he gave Saul three confirmations? He gave Saul three confirmations because he was called to go kill the Philistines and drive them out of the country, and it wasn't going to be easy. And on the days that it was really tough, Saul needed to know that on the day that I met the prophet, I also had a couple guys tell me that the donkeys were taken care of and that there was bread in my house and that I would be able to have communion with the Spirit And He's going to need it. Here's the problem. If you get confirmations going on in your life, get ready, okay? Get ready. You're going to need it. In fact, if if God starts confirming things in your life, you better write it down because there's going to be a day when you need to go get the journal out and go, what was I called to? Here's the deal. Anytime someone gives me a powerful prophetic word, I write it down in my journal. And I keep it. I have a little folder in my office right now. It's called prophecies. I just put them in there. Anytime God does something to confirm any of those problems, I have to get it back out and i write it down. And then there are days, you're, even though you might not believe this, there, there are days where it's not cool to be the pastor at the vineyard. And it isn't because of you guys. It's the Philistines. Thank you, Heath. That was great. I was beginning to dig a hole. And I just I just go and I get those out and I read them because I need to know why I was called here. What What am I doing here? What? Confirmations are a double-edged sword. If you start getting confirmations, know that God is calling you to something. Okay, He is calling you to something. Here's the reason that God confirms. God confirms because anointing is always pointed at darkness. Anointing is always pointed at darkness. God's good pleasure is always pointed at the tough spot. When you get anointed in your life, you don't get anointed so that we can have better meetings. When you get the anointing in your life, you don't get the anointing so that, um, so that we can have Holy Ghost goosebumps and someone can laugh. The anointing isn't about any of that, though some of that may come along with it. And if it does, I welcome it. The anointing is always pointed at darkness and when you, when you begin to have your life literally guided and directed when the, when the call and the purpose and the main thing in your life is, to, is for God to draw you back like, a, like an arrow and a bow and point you at the darkest, most lost spot that He can find and when He releases you into that, you're going to need anointing on your life and you're also going to need a confirmation or two. Why does God anoint? Because He wants to accomplish something why does he confirm? Because you need to know that he was serious. And you're going to need it. Because he's, he's pointing you at darkness, he's pointing you at trouble, and he's pointing you at difficulty. Here's the deal I, I, I have mixed emotions about the anointing at certain level, if I'm just being honest, and I have mixed emotions about confirmation. Because I know both of those are it's just, it's like, it's two things. Number one, God is going to be on my side. I'm going to see dramatic and incredible things. And number two, I'm going to experience darkness, trouble, trial, and travail. Guarantee it. Saul, anointed and confirmed because he was pointed at, he had a, he had a life calling. His, his, his one and only purpose in life was to go free the children of Israel from their enemies by war. David, anointed. David was anointed not with a flask. He was anointed with a horn and the horn always represents power. And David's, David's name means beloved. And it was something totally different. Refreshing beverage. And after David was anointed, he spent the next 13 years running around the desert with Saul throwing spears at him. What does the anointing get you in your life? It doesn't just get you more of God. It gets you more trouble. David spent 13 years in the desert with everyone who was in debt and who was down and out and who didn't have anywhere else to go following him around. Read for that, the losers. And he had the most powerful man in Israel throwing spears at him trying to kill him. That's what the anointing will get you. And it gets you communion with God. J- Jesus was anointed. He was baptized. It's Mark chapter 3. It might be my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. And he, when he came out, the Spirit came on him in bodily form like a dove and it, and it says it did not, did not leave him. It remained. And after Jesus was anointed and baptized, where did he go next? The desert with the devil. You know, who are we at the vineyard? We're people who are pursuing anointing because we, we want communion with God and we want our life to count. It, life is short. We've talked about this a lot lately. Life is short. You only have one of them. What we're doing today, who we are today, is going to have dramatic effects on my life today, on the people around me today, and on and generations that are coming behind me. Not only that, but my life today is having radical exponential effects on eternity and because of that, I want anointing in my life. I want divine empowerment. I want presence of the Spirit so that I can hit my life calling, do what I'm called to do. And when I draw my last breath, I want to be able to, to, rip, to just fade into the arms of Jesus knowing that I've hit my purpose. And at the same time, we need to, we need to have the sober reality hit us that when we get anointed, uh, get ready. You're going to darkness. You're going to trial. You're going to trouble. You're going to the desert with the devil. And you may be there for some time, some years. And it's another thing that we need to pick up from Saul, David, Solomon, and Jesus, and everyone who was anointed in the scripture. There's almost always a period of time from from the time you're anointed, there's, there's anointing, and then there's manifestation. And manifestation always happens later. And it comes after a period of testing, and it comes after a period of trial. You realize that when Saul was anointed, he had the shortest time. So Saul had the least trials before he became king, but there was still a space of time. David had the longest. Jesus spent 30 years in seclusion. John the Baptist spent most of his life being a complete unknown. Some of us think, well, I got the anointing. Give me the microphone. Get out of the way, Adam. No, it doesn't work that way. Period of time. That's how God works. So, into the desert with the devil. Another part I want you to know on the line. Chapter 10, verse 9. It says, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. See, if we want to have heart change, we have to have contact with the Spirit. It's the only place that heart change comes from. The only place that heart change comes from is contact with the Spirit. Heart change doesn't come by trying harder. It doesn't, it doesn't come by getting, uh, getting smarter. It doesn't it come by studying harder. Uh, it only comes by studying harder if the studying harder bring, brings you into closer contact with the Spirit. But if it's just about making you smarter, then you're just going to be really smart and really unanointed and not good for anything. Heart change comes from, from contact with the Spirit. And then a few verses down, it says, A man who lived there answered after he sees Saul prophesying. He says, Hey, what's going on? Is Saul also among the prophets? And after Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. And this ended up becoming a saying. And it was this little mantra that was, that was, this little proverb that was said for the rest of Saul's life. Is Saul among the prophets? It actually lived beyond Saul's life. And it came to mean like he's got religion. Like somebody's done gone crazy and they got Jesus, you know. They've never seen Saul do anything with the Lord. And now he's prophesying. Is Saul among the prophets? Heart change comes from contact with the Spirit. The other thing I want us to realize here is this that the heart change that, that Saul happened here, that received here, um, it, it was just the beginning of a process, and it was incomplete in Saul's life. It's a really big deal. God touched his heart, and it was just the beginning touch that God wanted to give him. It wasn't the complete touch, it was just the beginning touch. How many of you have ever been in a really good meeting and God really touched your heart, and you felt the change of the spirit? I mean like you, you left the meeting knowing that you're a different person and then 3 months later you end up back where you were or real real darn close. What's the point? The point is that change with God takes time. It just takes time. And and there's there's rarely that one moment when God comes and changes everything. The human heart is, is it's like an onion, there's just layers to it. And there's we just have layers of deception and selfishness and and just all kinds of things. And so what's the point? The point is we need continual contact with the Spirit. Here's one of the main differences, differences between Saul and David. Saul was anointed one time. David was anointed three times. i got to quit talking about David. Dang it. See, we, we're, not, we're not meant to just meet the Spirit once and get a little bit of change. We're meant to meet Him over and over again. Get more change. Let it go deeper. Carry the yes in my heart. <clears throat> a little further on in, in chapter 10. This is really great. Samuel has, throws a big dinner and, and they're going to have a coronation. And... um, He's been anointed as king, but he hasn't, he hasn't manifested as king. And so at his coronation, um, in verse 22, they're looking for Saul, no one can, can find him, even though they've been casting lots. And then finally someone finds him, and he says, yeah, we found him, but he's hiding among the baggage. He's hiding among the baggage. This is the reason that I know that Saul's change, Saul's encounter with the Spirit, was yet incomplete. It was the beginning of a process. Saul was, what, a head taller than everyone else? He was big on the outside, but he was small on the inside. And so God had anointed him, and when it was time for him to come and stand before all of his people and say, I'm the king, where's he at? He's hiding. Why? Because he's big on the outside, but he's little on the inside. His insecurities still run his life. And this is, this is really the beginning, of, the beginning of the end for Saul. He's big on the outside, but he's still small on the inside. And for all the signs that God was with him, he was still insecure, which is another way of saying that he didn't, understanding, he didn't have any understanding of what had just happened to him. Like, insecurity really is just, is really just this, especially within the context of what had just happened to Saul. Saul had, Saul's remaining insecurity was proof that he had no clue of what God had actually just done for him. And he still believed in his heart of hearts while he's hiding out in a suitcase that for this to happen or for him to be king... Or for him to be successful, it depended upon his own strength. And because of that, he goes and hides. Insecurity is just misplaced faith. Insecurity is, is the belief that it, it's all up to me. And everyone in the room is completely aware of just how weak we are. And that puts us in quite a quandary. So Saul lived in great tension. He lived... With a great anointing, a great call, great power, he had partnership with the Holy Spirit, and he was completely insecure. But God is still willing to use him. Um, and in chapter eleven, there's this. There's the first of Saul's conquest, and there's this really evil guy, and his name is Nahash, and he was an Ammonite. And he was the king of the Ammonites, and he took hold of this uh, this city in Israel, and uh, he he said to everyone in the city, he says. Um, you've got to make a treaty with me. And they said, well, well, we will make a treaty with you maybe if no one comes to get us. And he says, here's what, here's what we're going to do. I'll make a treaty with you, but I'm going to gouge the right eye of everyone in your city out so that it will just be an offense to the rest of your people and essentially an offense to God. All right? This is what's going on. Saul has gone home. Saul finds out about this. The report comes from the, the people in Jabesh that we're about to be taken over by this Ammonite king and he's going to gouge our right eye out and then take us over. And the Spirit of the Lord falls upon Saul. I love this. Spirit of the Lord falls on Saul. He's out plowing his field. And he takes the oxen and he hacks the oxen up. And he takes the, he takes the, the, the wood of the plow and he builds a fire and he offers it to the Lord. And he goes, rounds up a posse and he goes and he kills these guys utterly. And I love what he says here. He says in verse 11, he says, The next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and they slaughtered them until the heat of the day and those who who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. This is a guy who two days ago was hiding in the suitcases. What happened? He began to walk in his anointing. What was his anointing? To go free his own people. What was he anointed to do? To free his own people. When he heard the report that his own people were being persecuted, the Spirit of the Lord fell on him and he was beginning to change. Here's the deal. There was so much hope for Saul. This is the reason that the story of Saul breaks my heart. There was so much hope for him. Even though he was insecure, God didn't give up on him and continued to pour out his spirit on him so long as, as Saul was willing to, to partner with the anointing on his life. So in chapter 11, verse 11, Saul's kingly anointing gets put on display. And one of the things we need to realize about anointing is anointings always, they have spheres and they have boundaries. They have spheres and boundaries. And we need to understand this. Your calling and the anointing that God has put on your life, it has a sphere and it has a boundary. What does that mean? It means that you're not anointed or called or capable of doing everything all the time, everywhere with everyone. You're not even supposed to. It's one of the reasons that we have community. One of the beautiful things about community is that not everyone, when we have community, it, it, frees, every, it frees us from, from having to be the expert in everything. And so God, when he places anointing on your life, he's calling you to something specific. Saul's anointing was to be king and to be a liberator of his people. When he moved in that anointing, when he was moving in, in, in battle and when he was moving in war, he was, in, he was an anointed. he was anointed and he was in God's protection and he was in God's plan. So when God anoints you, when he calls you to something, he's calling you something very specific. And when you have an anointing in one area, you shouldn't get presumptuous and begin to lead and direct in another area that God hasn't called and anointed you for. One example of that. Um, One of the main dudes around here at the vineyard is, is Dr. Ray. And Dr. Ray is an incredibly anointed guy. And you know what Doctor Ray is anointed in? His main anointing is Father. Any of you guys been around Doctor Ray? Can I tell you, Doctor Ray has, has 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 an anointing on his life, and it manifests in lots of different ways. But his anointing is Father, and everything that happens happens out of Father. That's the thing that's put on him. How many of you have? Um, this is this will be fun because it's a little bit embarrassing. How many of you, how many of you have had like whacked family relationships that have been healed because you got around Dr. Ray? You know? Lots of hands, just went up. Why? Because he's anointed in Father. That's his main anointing. I could play this game all day with a lot of people here. God, God, God has put us together in just the right way. And he, and he puts anointing on someone. He puts grace and favor and ability and empowerment on someone to do certain things. We should embrace that and then not look to overstep that. But in chapter thirteen, things change, and Saul's confidence begins to change. Look at this: uh, in chapter thirteen, in in, in verse three, uh, they go out and they kick some butt. Okay. And then look at what Saul does. This is the guy who had been hiding in the suitcases, too afraid to come before his own people in a time of peace. And Saul, after, after a little victory, Saul says, have the trumpet blown throughout the land. And he said, let the Hebrews hear this. So all Israel heard the news. And look at this. This is, this is in quotations. And what that tells us is this is what Saul wanted released. This is what he had sent out. Saul has attacked the Philistines' outpost, and, has, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Seeing the difference? Something's beginning to happen in Saul. The guy who was so insecure is beginning to have some security, but now where's his security beginning to rest? How many times is the name Saul written down in like three verses? He's beginning to rest upon himself. It's one of the other key differences between Saul and David when, when David fought Goliath, he didn't fight Goliath for Israel. He didn't fight Goliath for Saul. He fought Goliath for God. It's a really big deal. But now Saul is beginning to become confident. It's a result of the anointing, and he's beginning to take his confidence in himself. He's beginning to think, I'm the source of this. And I love the, I love the poetic... justice here It's looking for the word it's stumbling as soon as Saul sends out this this little edict as soon as he sends out this little news blurb a bunch of Philistines show up to fight it says in, 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 verse, in verse 5 it says soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore and at that point everyone who's with Saul begins to leave isn't this great Saul's like, dude, I got it all together. Philistines are like, oh yeah, we'll come with you, with everything we've got. And now everyone who was with Saul begins to run away. And Saul was supposed to, before anything else happened, Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel at this point. Samuel was going to come and he was going to sacrifice and worship the Lord with Saul. But because Saul felt the, the enemies pressing in upon him, and because some of his own people were leaving, look at verse 8. It says, he waited seven, seven days, the, days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. Why didn't Samuel not come? Well, he had a hard time getting there because all the Philistines have surrounded him, okay? But he, he, he eventually makes it. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered the burnt offering. And just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. A couple things. So this thing about anointing and spheres. Saul began to act out of Act, began to step into anointing that he wasn't anointed to be. Saul was not a priest. He was a war king. Whose job was to do the sacrifices? Samuel's. It's a really big deal. And not only that, but Samuel said, wait seven days and I'll be there. He didn't. He was presumptuous. And then in verse 12, Samuel says to him, Saul, you, you've acted foolishly. You have not, not committed command, the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Now, look at this this is prophecy. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out another man, sought out a man after his own heart, and appointed him leader of his people because you have not commit, kept the Lord's command. Any of that sound familiar? He's beginning to prophesy David even now. The other thing I want you to notice about this little section in chapter 13 is that Saul never repented. Saul's sure that the the victories are coming because of him, and he's also positive that he's not the result of the failure. Samuel comes and says, you have messed up. The prophet says, you have sinned before God, and there there was no sign of repentance. Saul never even said, I'm sorry. His heart is beginning to change. And then it goes from bad to worse. In chapter 14, one of the most incredible moments in the scripture, Jonathan, so completely different than his father, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, which is basically the hired hand, says to the hired hand, he says, just the two of them, they've been, they've, they've been separated from the other, from the other pieces of the army. And he says to his armor bearer, hey, I think that's a Philistine outpost up there. We should we should do this. We should go out and we should call out to them. We should call them names and when they see us if they if they say come up here then we'll know that God is with us and we'll go up and utterly destroy them. How many of you, you guys realize that's not a good plan? <laughs> like army on the hill on the up on the hill you're down below with one dude and your plan is, we'll go out, we'll stand in front of them, we'll call out, we'll call them names, and if they say, come up here, we'll know that God is, God is with us, and we'll go up and kill them. A couple things. Number one, you're outnumbered. Number two, they have the high ground. This shouldn't work, right? They do it. They go up. Hey, you guys, you know. Philistines are like, come on up. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, grab my sword, let's go. They go to the top of the hill, and they just waylay people. They wait, 20 men in like a half mile. They just, they just, and then panic breaks out among the Philistine camp, and the Philistines start hacking each other to pieces. The Spirit of the Lord gets involved. Saul's heart is beginning to change more and more to the bad. Saul wakes up that morning. He doesn't know what's going on. He just knows that his men are beginning to fight. And he says, he says to his whole army, he says, no one on this day will eat. No one's going to eat until we've killed everyone. How, how, how strong are you when you haven't eaten for a few hours? Then, then it gets even stranger because Jonathan comes back after the great victory and he doesn't know that his, that his dad has put a curse on all of Israel and he takes the end of his staff and his staff represents his authority and he sticks it into the honey, a little bit of honey, and he touches it to his eye. Touches it to his eye. Touches it to his mouth. And it says his eyes were brightened. And it's this really prophetic picture of Jonathan just begins to take, st- stick out his staff, his staff of authority. And he puts it in, into, the, in just, into the honey of God's word. And he just places it on his tongue. And his eyes are enlightened. And then they say, Oh, man, you shouldn't have done that. Saul finds out. And Saul says, Even if it's my own son, if anyone has tasted anything, we'll kill him. They bring him through a series of events, through casting lots. The lot falls on Jonathan and Saul looks at his own son who has been the source of the great military victory of that day and Saul says, kill him. Bad to worse. Not only that, but the only way that Jonathan gets saved is that his own men begin to rebel against Saul and say, no, we will not let it happen. Saul's leadership is beginning to is beginning to put hardship on his people. And so this is what I want you to see. I want you to see that Saul's internal struggle and his internal, his internal battle and his internal, um, all of his internal issues he's beginning to put on everyone around him. No one eats. I'm starved. You'll be starved. And it almost cost him his own son. Jonathan nearly dies. I want to look at one more section of Scripture. It's the last thing today. Chapter 15. And this is when the Lord rejects Saul as king. This is the final straw. God comes to Saul through Samuel and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the Amalekites. They, they have, they have been, a, they've been a plague to my people. And, and the specific way that the Amalekites have been a, a plague to God's people is that they've just been really ruthless with them. And they've over and over killed cities. And when they kill cities, they go in and kill everyone and God says, today is payback day. Saul, go in. I want you to attack the Amalekites. I want you to kill everyone. Women, children, animals, nothing survives. Everyone. Saul goes in. They kick butt. They take names. But they don't kill everyone. And what ends up happening is this. Saul allows King, the king uh, to survive, King Agag. He allows him to live. And he allows all of the best animals to survive. And, the, and, the peop- and his men begin to take it as the spoils. Samuel shows up and says, Saul, what is going on? I've heard it. God has spoken to me. You didn't do what he said. But Saul comes out and says, No, Samuel, I've done everything the Lord commanded. Can you imagine? The Lord gives him a clear, direct word, and he meets the prophet, and he says, I've done everything the Lord's instructed. Now, I can't decide if Saul's trying to, if he's in spin mode, or if he's utterly deceived. At this point, I'm, I'm to the point where I believe he's just completely deceived, and even though the Lord gives a clear word, he's, he's unable to even, to even hear the clear word, and he, he changes it to, to suit his own devices, and 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 Samuel says, "No, this isn't going to work." And because of that, you're you're going to you're rejected, and um, and your kingdom isn't going to last, and your anointing is over. Look at verse twenty-five. Saul is somewhat upset about it. I think he, he's at that place where he's just upset about being find, found out rather than being actually upset. And he says to Samuel, he says, "Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord." So Saul turns to Samuel and says, "Forgive me. Who, who should have Saul who, who, who should Saul have been talking to?" Yeah. It's complete misplaced. He, he doesn't even understand who, who's been good to him. Complete deception. And then verse 27. Incredibly sad. Samuel turned to leave Saul and he, Saul caught, caught hold of Samuel's robe and he tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn your kingdom, the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. And so the guy who ended up, the guy who started out anointed, the guy who started out so good ends up Rejected by God. One last thing. Look at verse 35. This is maybe the saddest thing in the whole story. Verse 35. Until the day Samuel died, he never went to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is how the story ends. It actually goes on for a little bit more, but one of the, one of the really sad parts for me is Saul disobeys the Lord, never owns up to it. And in the process of disobeying the Lord, never owning up to it, Samuel leaves Saul and never comes to visit him again. Do you know how far apart Samuel and Saul lived from one another? They lived 10 miles away from one another. And for the next, for the rest of his life, they never they never had fellowship together. You know what that tells me? It tells me that when we disobey and when we walk in unforgiveness and when we, when we refuse to repent... It, it removes the prophetic from our life. There's a real consequence. And this is one of the things that, that God is beginning to say uh, that he was saying in the scripture here and he's, and he's still saying to us is that there's, there's just a real, like disobedience is a big deal. That was profound. Disobedience is a really big deal. It, 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 you know, if you want to increase in anointing, it, in, the increase in anointing is always about faithfulness and stewarding the little thing that God's given you, whatever the size of it is. Disobedience always puts a cap on what God can do in your life. And one of the first places that disobedience begins to really move is it shuts off your ears and it will withhold the prophetic from your life. It'll never come back. Not until you get right with God. Here's the deal. Uh, the other part is, too, I actually believe that if Saul had turned and fallen on his face and said, God, I have, I've been awful, I, God... Changed my heart. God would have touched him. But he never did. He never did. So what's the point for us today? A couple things. Um, Number one, all anointing comes from God. All anointing comes from God. you don't manufacture it. You you don't get to just decide it. It all comes from God. He decides. He gives. He anoints. He fills. Number two, the anointing is a treasure. It's a treasure. Your your call, your destiny, uh, your life in God... Uh, The place that that God has dreamed for you, that's a treasure. Uh, The empowerment of the spirit that God will give to every single person he calls, that's a treasure. It's an absolute treasure. It's a treasure because it's the key to my life. It's the key to your life. Is God's anointing on your life. And number three, anointing isn't greater than my heart. Anointing isn't greater than character. Anointing isn't greater than a heart that's turned toward God. It helps, but it isn't greater than than my submitted yes to Jesus. Number four, anointing can be lost. Disobedience limits, and it invites, disobedience invites the judgment of God into my life. And when God comes to judge, He doesn't come to judge so that He can beat us up. God gets no pleasure from smacking someone around. The reason that God comes in and begins to judge is because God's great love for us, and He wants you to hit your mark. I love what Mike Bickle says. Mike Bickle says that God's judgment, it, 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 it lands on everything that opposes love. It's so true. It is so true. So what's the response for us today? The response for us today is, The response for us today is to pursue God, to pursue His anointing, and to keep our heart small, open, humble, and malleable before Him. You liked how I just used the word malleable, didn't you? So that's like like a $5 word. Mm -hmm. Why don't we stand up this morning? If you're on the ministry team, come on forward.